The celebration of victory often leaves these sort of monumental remembrances for us. The, the statue of American soldiers raising the flag at the, the Battle of Iwo Jima memorably symbolizes the last press for victory in World War II. Likely, everyone in the West has seen the iconic photograph of the, the soldier kissing the nurse in Times Square to celebrate the announcement of Allied victory. And these icons, these remembrances, are things that point us to, to recall the, the joy of hope for those who celebrate these victories. But victory always has another side. These remembrances also mark someone's defeat. And although sentiments and cultures may change over time about whether or not those specific defeats were a good thing, still, victory for one is always defeat for another. And the book of Joel is about the day of the Lord. Joel reflected upon the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he foretold the same destruction for the southern kingdom of Judah where he lived. The the day of the Lord in the first half of Joel, 1-1 to 2-17, was an event of destruction for people who had ruined their relationship with God by continuously breaking their national covenant with Him. So, just as reminders, Joel 1-15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. And then in Joel 2, 1 to 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. But then, in this book's second half, Joel announced how God would return to reclaim His people. So Joel 2, 31-32. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we saw last time, right, that once the curses are satisfied, the day of the Lord changes from an event of destruction into an event of salvation, an event of rescue for those who belong to God. And we thought about how that is totally fulfilled in Christ, who satisfies the curse of death that is due to all who sin against God. And if we come to God in Christ, the day of the Lord, that end of history event, when Christ returns to install His kingdom in full, it changes from an event of destruction for us into one of rescue. It changes from an event of defeat into an event of victory. And so instead of inflicting that curse of death upon us, Christ will rescue us from it. 
since he has endured that curse for all who trust in him. And then Joel 3, where we find ourselves today, continues that day of the Lord theme as an event of rescue for God's people. So verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. That that victorious event of rescue for God's people is also an event of curse-filled defeat for God's enemies. So just like those markers of allied victory in Iwo Jima and New York remind us to celebrate those moments of hope, but also marks the fall of another side. So too, the announcement of the day of the Lord is a beacon of hope for all who will find shelter in Christ, but a dreadful moment of destruction for God's enemies. So the main point that we consider today That the day of the Lord calls God's people to rejoice because God will completely save all those who belong to him and simultaneously judge those who do not. The day of the Lord calls God's people to rejoice because God will completely save those who are his and simultaneously judge those who are not. And we'll think about this in three points. God's ferocity, God's fight, and God's family. And so, first, God's ferocity. Okay, let's get our bearings in this passage. It's long, there's a bit going on here. So Joel 3 has two major sections. Okay, in in verses 1 to 12, God summarized His intent to judge the nations. This, This section is bookended with twin announcements that God will gather the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat for judgment. So, verses... 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. And then again, we see The same thing announced in verse 12. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And then we see the second half in verses 13 to 21. And there God called his people to action against their enemies. They are to prepare for war because God will roar from Zion ferociously opposed to those who have hurt His people. And these two sections powerfully summon God's people to rejoice as God overruns their lives with abundant blessings and trounces their enemies for standing against them. So now the rest of this point is going to explore what this text teaches about God himself, about his character. Most of the world thinks about God's love in a really soft sort of way. The, The stereotype of God's love, I think, is something like being a kind grandfather 
You know, people pretend that God has this mansion in the sky where He waits for you to stop by to give you sweets so He can hear about your day. God's love tends to be known more by inspirational posters and chicken soup for the soul books than from the demonstrations of that love from the storyline of Scripture. Scripture, though, depicts God's love in ways that could hardly be more different than notions on inspirational posters. Scripture depicts the true God as a forceful lover of His people. He is not the idle grandfather piddling in the sky waiting for you to take interest in Him. He is the King who storms enemy territory to claim His captured bride. He's not sitting and hoping for some people to love Him. He he is on the war path to claim His people. And this chapter throughout displays God's ferocious love. Joel 2, 18-32 showed God's initiative to reclaim His people and that it was grounded in His desire to have His people. And we see that continue here in this chapter in how Verses 1-2 to two promise that in the days leading to the day of the Lord, He will restore the fortunes of His people and moreover, will gather His people's enemies into the valley of Jehoshaphat to judge them. Now, the word Jehoshaphat just means God judges. You sort of see, So, Jehovah judges. You can sort of see it, right? Jehovah. Shaphat just means judges. So, it's unlikely that... Joel meant a specific literal valley. He mentions it later as the valley of decision, which is just another way of talking about judgment. But he's simply talking about that God will assemble His enemies in one place to destroy them. He won't bring them to a mountain, the places where God makes covenants with His people, but into a valley so that they are trapped in a place where they can be annihilated. These people had done tremendous wrongs to Israel. They had sold Israelites into slavery, sometimes just to buy wine or in exchange for godless acts, verse 3 and verse 6. In return, God is going to pay them back with a violent End verses four to eight. He will send war upon them. Verse nine, turn peaceful people into dangerous foes. Verse ten and eleven, and will pour out his judgment upon them in full. Verse twelve. It might be easy to overlook the fundamental point, though, namely that God is turning so ferociously against those who have wronged His people. If we read this passage casually, which we should never do, we might think that God is just mad at godless people. But the point is far more specific than that. God 
is furious at those who have wronged his own. This is not arbitrary anger. This is anger grounded in deep, boundless love for his people. This is not whimsical anger. This is a raging husband on the war path to recover his kidnapped bride. God's ferocity is that he stands to rescue and defend those who belong to him with all of his sovereignty. And that brings us to our second point, God's fight. The last point considered how fierce God's love is for his people, something we should learn to cherish when we belong to Christ. God's actions to grant victory to his nation are rooted in how deeply he cares for those whom he has chosen. If, if we remember our opening illustration, though we know that victory for one side always means striking defeat for the other. And this point reflects on the other side that suffers defeat. So, God's people, God's people, should be filled with hope as they hear about the Lord's promises in this passage to overthrow their enemies. It's, it's obvious, at least, from Joel 2.32, which says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's obvious from that, that the Lord's people are those who have cast themselves in trust upon God for salvation. Those who are not God's people, in other words, those who are his enemies, are those who don't trust the Lord for salvation. And so this point is directly for those of you who don't trust in God. And I I think the normal approach or the typical approach in many situations like this is to explain how much God loves you and how that should win you to Him. But this time around, I want to explain how much God opposes you if you are not part of His people. In other words, if you are not a Christian, God has offered His love to you if you would accept Christ, but as of now, you can be assured only of God's commitment to wage war upon you for eternity. So read verses 9 to 16 with me. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in tread for the wine press is full the vats overflow for their evil is great multitudes multitudes it's about how many people are in that place of judgment 
Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. We see how the vats, though God is sending his people to tread the vats, meaning the grapes to be judged, overflow all the containers that could hold them. The harvest is full and God sends his people to collect it. This section is a long command for God's people to prepare for war against their enemies. Whereas, this is super interesting. So whereas Micah 4.3 and Isaiah 2.4 foretold that the nation shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, God commanded precisely the opposite in Joel 3.10. So that raises another instance of thinking through difficult ways that the Scripture cites other Scriptures. We saw last time in the way that Acts 2 cites Joel 2, 28-32. So why, why would Joel, this prophet, who wrote well after the prophets Micah and Isaiah, reverse the prediction that those prophets made, aside from the obvious reason that the Holy Spirit inspired him to do so? Why would he invert God's promises? And the reason, the reason that Joel reversed this earlier prediction, keep in mind that Isaiah and Micah were predicting a future day, Joel reversed that prediction precisely because the days when no one would need weapons were still far in the future. That day had not yet come. In Joel's day, God sent his people to battle those who invaded and oppressed them and ensured his people's victory. We see in verses 13 to 15, God's announcement that he will give victory to his people in battle and their victory will be abundant. The the signs of God's wrath, the darkened sun, moon, and stars will be upon those enemies. And further, verse 16, God himself roars from Zion to make the earth quake against his enemies while remaining a fortress to those who belong to him. The point for us to see is that God is not cozy and sweet for those who are not his people. God is not there for your convenience. God is not there so that you could feel better. If you are opposed to God, God will be far more opposed to you forever. So we have considered God's 
ferocious love for His people. And the last point, the flip side of that is that His fierce love for some manifests in fierce wrath against others. And the clear question for all of us today then is where do you stand in relationship to God? That is the crucial question, is it not? Because the fundamental principles, even if the expressions have changed, the fundamental principle of God's love for His people and wrath for those who are not His people have not changed. God does not call the church today to battle their enemies with weapons, But that should not be thought to mean that God has lowered the walls of His opposition against those who are outside of His people. God's fight remains against those who don't belong to Him. That brings us to our third point, God's family. Okay, so... In the first point, we saw how God ferociously loves His people and stands against those who oppose those whom He loves. In the second point, we saw the flip side of victory for God's people was that God fights those who are not His. And that makes a a startling contrast in the world between those who are with God and those who are not. But it leaves us wondering how we can reconcile the well-known truth of God's abounding love with the fact that God stands ready to battle those who don't belong to Him. So how can we bring those together? How can we understand both? How can, in the the language of this text, how can anyone hope to take part in those immense blessings described in verses 17 to 21? How can God be our God who stands to defend us? Verse 17. How can we reap abundant effects of paradise in overflowing wine and fresh water? Verse 18. How can we no longer be those whom God will make desolate? Verse 19, how can we be part of that nation that God will bless and defend forever? Verse 20 and 21. You may not be surprised to find that our answer is in Christ. The Apostle Paul explained the transition from being part of an enemy nation to being part of God's people in Ephesians 2, 12-13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, some of the most blessed words in Scripture, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These verses 
center around those who were not part of Israel, explicitly not part of Israel. Those alienated from that commonwealth, in other words, those who were not members of God's people. It is in Christ, by His blood, that those who were far off can be brought near, made part of Israel, of God's people. But how is that? We are God's enemies because of our sin. That's the reason when we violate God's commands, we make ourselves unlovable in many ways. It's not simply that we're imperfect, is it? But we're wicked. Because we hate the things that are good and holy that God has made known to us by making us in His, by nature in His image and by revealing His express will to us in His Word. We are wicked and the holy God cannot stand our presence except to destroy us. But God has dealt with our sin in Christ. Although God could, if He had wanted, send us all to hell and wage war against us for all eternity, instead, God has poured out His wrath on His own Son on the cross. Whereas we are supposed to die for our sin, Christ has died in our place to make us clean. God has fought for you Because you are valuable to Him. And He has bought you back in Christ's cross because He wants you. And now, God calls His church into action as well. But Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.4 that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We're not called to beat our tools into weapons to attack God's enemy, but are called to extend the offer of God's love to God's enemies in Christ. We are called to fight with the proclamation of the Gospel. That good news of salvation to all who will trust in Jesus Christ that they will be forgiven their sins and saved for eternal life. God's family are those whom Christ has redeemed through the gospel and brought together in his church. And to tie this together, Christ has left us a remembrance, a monument of that victory over sin and death, one wherein... He Himself comes to dine with us at His table. This Lord's Supper that we celebrate today is that statue, that monument, left to point to how God ultimately defeated death in the cross of Christ. It is a mark of how God fought for those whom He treasures and has included them in His people. He invites all of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation to participate in this visible way, in the body and blood of Christ as we assemble at this meal we have together. God here at this table simultaneously places it on display 
that he has overthrown his enemies and shows that he will provide in all ways for his people. Let us consider now how we should, can, and ought to run to the Savior for salvation, that God would not defeat, but defend us for all eternity. Just as Joel 3 called God's people to rejoice that God had secured their victory, this meal calls God's people to rejoice that He has given us eternal life, made us His family. So let's go to Him in prayer. Father God, it is a chilling thing to consider judgment, the way that you do oppose wicked sinners and the fate that awaits them in eternity if they have not come to Jesus Christ for salvation. And so we plead with you that as we consider that, that as we consider how drastic the end of things will be, that judgment that awaits that you would be at work convicting us of our sin, leading us to Christ, whether it be for salvation in the first place, for the first time that you would grant faith here and now, or whether it be that we would flee to Christ for holiness, that we would turn away from those things that deserve judgment, and that we would cling to him in faith, stronger faith than we had when we came, and that we would treasure in our hearts being part of your family, your people, whom you will defend for eternity, whom you have made yours, and who pour immense blessings upon us, namely, in knowing your presence, in knowing your Son, in having him, and experiencing your love in the gospel. We pray that we would treasure those things in our hearts and that they would make a difference in our lives. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.